Ontology, the Waystation of Red Pill Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Eric, Jenny, Mia, and many other bots Previously, in the Ontology podcast series After the Soviet withdrawal in the 1990s, the United States and the West decided that Afghanistan was no longer worth continued investment, leaving behind a political vacuum. The war on terror and the advent of the Islamic State have complicated the situation. The US did not withdraw from Afghanistan after getting rid of Osama bin Laden, and this of course was a major mistake. With the few elite US-trained troops unable to keep the country together, the government departments in Kabul became puppets of the warlords. Season 4 The Islamic World and the Inner Asian Order Episode 5 Dealing with the Vacuum Left by the Withdrawal At this point, the Trump administration and the Biden administration began to pursue a policy of withdrawal, begun by Trump and carried out by Biden, which caused the course of history to accelerate abruptly. This withdrawal plan also included the condition that the airfields in Afghanistan were to be taken over by the Turks after the withdrawal of American troops in a step-by-step manner. And the Turks, not long ago, when they intervened in the Libyan civil war, had just done something that China did not even dare to let its public know, namely to send Uyghurs of Turkish nationality into Tripoli to guard the airport against the Chinese and Russian-backed Libyan warlord, Khalifa Haftar. If the Turks pull another stunt like this in Kabul, or even allow these Uyghurs to recruit some Uzbek militia as their own outfit at Kabul airport, it would be a repeat of the Kosovo war situation on China's western border, and a lot of China's efforts in Xinjiang would be wasted. This is the key to China's rapid commitment to supporting the Taliban's entry into Kabul. We have to note that in the past, China was like a little brother of Russia in its Central Asian policy. It generally supported whoever Russia supported, it usually did not dare to support whoever Russia opposed. Only in this year, on the Taliban issue, Russia is clearly supporting Massoud and the Northern Alliance, not the Taliban, and China has turned out to be the only player supporting the Taliban. Even Pakistan, which used to be closest to the Taliban, did not dare to do so, while China had no other choice. The immediate stimulus was the involvement of the Turks. Only if the Taliban quickly occupy Kabul and force the Western diaspora to retreat from it, will the Turks be forced to abandon their plans to take over the airport. If, as planned by the US, the Afghan Republic continues to engage with the Taliban after the withdrawal of US troops and negotiates how to establish a coalition government, while the Turks enter Kabul at the same time, then China will find itself in an awkward position. This future could only be avoided if chaos was created so that the Turks could not come and the Taliban quickly marched in. But the cost of doing so is high. The only reason the Afghan government has been able to stay afloat is thanks to the US fiscal framework. Without the US fiscal framework, a westernized metropolis like Shanghai in 1945 would not have survived within Afghanistan, where tribesmen and peasants make up the majority of the population. Kabul is a city that depends on international consumption and the expenditure of the US military to feed it. China has to take on this huge burden. China has never done anything like this before. Never before had China taken on such a terrifying task under Soviet protege, or during Mao's anti-Soviet revolution, or as America's orderly. Now, it has to take on this task. A mission of such significance and consequence most certainly requires a great deal of political decisiveness and won't happen without the support of the top leader.
Xi Jinping must have endorsed this plan. This plan would first require spending billions of dollars to buy off various warlords, especially the Pashtun warlords and dignitaries in Kandahar and Kabul itself, to fall over in support of the Taliban, so that the Taliban's jaw-dropping speedy advance could be realized. The Taliban's true fighting prowess could already be gauged in the battle for Helmand province. Its most elite forces, even with Pakistani Taliban volunteers helping to fight, could only draw even with the government's most elite forces. There is no way for such a troop to take over Kabul unless the resistant armies defect. And both gates of Kabul and Kandahar were thrown open without bloodshed. The government forces, the governor of Kandahar, Rohala Khanzada, on the Republican side, openly shook hands with Taliban officials after the Taliban entered the city, signifying internal betrayal. The fact that Pashtun officials have largely reconciled with the Taliban, and that only Tajik and Uzbek officials have run away to continue the resistance, also illustrates the same. The military severance payments were only part of the story. In the midst of the chaos, the Taliban took over Kabul, which is unable to feed itself and has to depend on China for its food and crude oil. China has worked out a solution in the last two days, that is, Iran has promised to supply Kabul with crude oil which means millions of dollars a day and nearly $2 billion per year. Let's note that the Afghan government has an income of only a little over a billion dollars a year, and so does the Taliban as well. Most of the fund has to be used to feed the troops and there is no cash left to buy oil. Yet Iran has already sent the oil to Kabul. Who is advancing this money? Surely not the US. Iran is extremely short of dollars and it can only be deduced that China has advanced this money to Iran. This is very similar to the practices of Chinese espionage in Ethiopia, Burma, and indeed around the world in the last two years. Of course, China used to act as an orderly of the US in the Karzai era. The Americans set up an Afghan government, and China recognized it. When the Americans donated a few hundred million, the Chinese donated a few million. When there came business opportunities, China brought in its own migrant workers to build sewerage pipelines, a mining project, or a road construction project, earning sweat money, not daring or being able to have complaints of the framework created by the Americans. Then in the Xi Jinping era, they joined forces with the Taliban to seize supreme power and involve themselves in an unmanageable task. Naturally, the Taliban are counting on China to keep them afloat, that's for sure. China cannot afford not to keep throwing money in. So much money has already been sunk. It cannot stop now. Iranian oil is what China has to give the Taliban once they are in town. The Taliban are strapped for cash. Its billions of dollars have been split by various warlord chiefs for other purposes. It is impossible to spend that money in Kabul. If the Taliban attempted to ask the warlords for money it would have caused internal divisions. And Kabul is purely a consumer city, it lives off the spending of the American troops and the aid of the US and the international community. Once the Americans are gone, all this money is gone from Kabul. The Biden administration has not hesitated to freeze all Afghan savings abroad, which means that the 200,000 troops and civil servants in Kabul will have to be fed by the Taliban in the future who themselves do not yet have 200,000 troops. The Taliban's own various warlord armies, mainly those fed by the tribes and local forces, are only a few tens of thousands. 200,000 soldiers and civil servants, plus 7 million people, where could it find the resources to feed them? If it does not feed them, 
there will be an immediate humanitarian catastrophe, then its coalition government will instantly collapse, and China's plan to rely on Afghanistan to link up with Iran and establish a stable rearguard will be in vain. Therefore, China has to immediately transfer a second batch of funds to get the commercial banks in Afghanistan back up and running, so that Afghan civil servants can get paid and the markets in Kabul can work again. The cost of feeding Kabul's millions of inhabitants is probably going to exceed 100 million. In fact, $100 million is certainly not going to be enough, because Kabul is an isolated city, and food has to be transported from Uzbekistan in the north and Pakistan in the south, passing through warlord jurisdictions along the way. If, for example, $100 million were spent on food, $500 million would have to be given to the various warlords as transit fees. On top of the expenses of maintaining the civil and military officials and the local markets, it probably can't be less than $1 billion. This sum must be advanced immediately, or else the coalition government will instantly collapse, and so will the severance payments. Not only will the Taliban be unable to rule Afghanistan, but because so much of the Taliban forces were lost in Kabul, which is flat on all sides with no tenable defense position. It will be questionable whether the Taliban can return their base in the south. This money must be advanced before the end of September 2021 or there will be an immediate famine in Kabul. If no famine occurs in Kabul, we can conclude that China has poured in another $500 million to $1 billion. If the American-backed Afghan government falls, all that the Western powers and the international community will give is meager humanitarian aid. Merkel has already said that after Germany's successful evacuation, it could give, say, 100 million euros in humanitarian aid. This is only a small fraction of the four-fifths of the expenditure of the Afghan government provided by the international community while the US was still in charge. It would be a miracle if, after the US withdrawal, the international community could fill the whole of 4 to 5 billion US dollars per year with 400 million to 500 million US dollars per year. Then who will cover the balance? The only solution is to use the mines in Afghanistan as collateral and let China pay. At least to pay for the maintenance of government officials and the army, and those allowances paid by the warlords in the provinces. Without these allowances, it is unlikely that these warlords will support the Taliban. More money would need to be spent to appease the warlords in the north. China does not necessarily need to cover all of the costs, but at least the money to keep Kabul itself stable and to maintain the facade of the coalition government, which would be at least several billion dollars, must be transferred, or the Taliban will not survive this winter as governing power in Afghanistan. If there is a humanitarian disaster in Kabul this winter and the provincial warlords' allowances are not forthcoming, then when the snow melts and the mountain passes open next spring, the melee of the warlords will break out and the political councils of the unarmed battle will not be able to sustain themselves within the Taliban. China now maintains its foreign exchange reserves by keeping borrowing at usury from middlemen. Foreign exchange reserves create shadow credit. As long as China nominally has $3 trillion in foreign exchange reserves, it is easy to borrow a lot of money on the presumption of those reserves. If all of a sudden one declares, I only have $600 billion, the rest is foreign capital and debt, you can borrow much less. Hence, China has to keep up the facade by keeping borrowing at a high interest rate. But short-term usury creates a bigger burden and depletes its base, which is still China's sweatshops and migrant workers. 
It was therefore inevitable that China would push for a domestic land grab to re-centralize capital into the party's political sector and squeeze all the fat and butter out of this new group of entrepreneurs who had made their fortunes during the reform and opening up period, sacrificing it for the cause of Chinese imperialism. Ideological excuses are not important, practical needs are the most important. The two most critical ones of the real needs are the army and the finances. Without money and without soldiers, nothing can be done. The need for finance and an army forces one to do many things, including forcing the Taliban to do what it considered a warlord's evil and it opposed the warlord and now does the same thing after it has become a new warlord itself. After necessity has forced you to do something, you then go to the intellectuals and look for plausible or implausible, good or bad reasons to justify yourself, as has been the general rule of human realpolitik since time immemorial. No one involved in realpolitik can escape this rule. As the sources of money and resources can only be directed in the direction of less resistance, there is no doubt that the new Chinese bourgeoisie formed during the reform and opening up period is basically doomed. They will soon be stripped of their assets and dragged into China's imperialist gamble. If China's imperialist gamble fails, then the whole of Chinese society will be destroyed along with the Chinese Communist Party. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative.